This is the Data Science Conversations podcast with Damien Dehan and Dr. Philip Diesinger, featuring cutting-edge AI and data science research from the world's leading academic minds, so you can expand your knowledge and grow your career. This show is sponsored by Data Science Talent. Welcome to the Data Science Conversations podcast. My name is Damien Dehan, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Philip Diesinger. Our guest, Professor Cohen, completed his PhD in computer science in 2003 at the University of Southern California. He then went on to a postdoc position at MIT, and in 2014 became a professor at the John Hopkins University. He has been a prolific publisher of over a hundred academic papers in the field of machine translation. He has also authored two seminal textbooks in machine translation, the latest of which was released in June 2020. Beyond academia, his contributions have impacted many industry applications, uh, such as the likes of Google Translate. He is currently the chief scientist and a shareholder of Omniscient, one of the world's leading providers of enterprise translation products and services. He has also worked directly with Facebook to help them make machine translation technology available for their next 100 languages. He is undoubtedly a pioneer and world leader in the field of machine translation and AI. Professor Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So today's discussion will cover a lot of ground. Uh, We're going to look at the evolution of machine translation from rule-based statistical and phrase-based methods right the way up to the current landscape, which is dominated by neural networks. And from there, we'll talk about how to use training data effectively, uh, the increasingly important role of technical infrastructure, commercial applications in industry, And finally, an introduction to the best open source tools available for those of you who want to explore further. The context of all of this is, of course, machine translation. However, the methods that we're going to discuss are highly relevant to many of the problems faced in other areas of natural language processing. And the core principles of Professor Cohen's contributions to the field of neural networks have got data science applications beyond language. But before we get into that, let's briefly introduce the bigger picture. Professor Cohen, what is machine translation? I mean, it's a very easy to explain problem. So you have documents and all kinds of languages in the world, and you would like to know what they say, and therefore you need to have translation. So that's a process that humans have been doing forever. And it's always been one of the holy grails of natural language processing and I would say over the last 20, 30 years, it definitely has gone from the point of being just ridiculously bad to actually pretty useful. And there are even some crazy claims about human parity. We might want to talk about that later. But the quality is actually quite impressive for languages where we have a lot of resources. Why have you dedicated your life to studying machine translation? So when I started out studying computer science, I was interested in machine learning. And originally, I actually did mostly machine learning for machine learning's sake. That was the early 90s where a crazy idea like neural networks was around. And my my master thesis at that time was actually on neural networks. I just realized then relatively quickly that it's kind of bad to work on machine learning for machine learning's sake without having a problem. It's much easier to have a problem (laughs) to work on. And at that time, kind of 
just generally text processing just occurred as a real good problem for machine learning. Because you have data, there are real practical problems to work on. So when I did my PhD, that was the topic of the, my, my thesis advisor, Kevin Knight. It's a real meaty problem and there is data, so you can actually do machine learning. And it's somewhat of a feasible task where at least some idea about what the correct input and the correct output should be. You very neatly touched on the problem with neural machine translation. How would you describe the fundamental problem faced by practitioners in the field? I'm hinting at the very humorous way you described it in the opening of your, your new book. Yeah, so when I ask people about what they think about machine translation and show them the output, I get extremely wild, different opinions. Some people say it's like it's all terrible and some people are super impressed. So I started the book with this example of Zitzpinkler, which is kind of a comical word to explain wimps. Another one is warmduscher, which means someone who takes warm showers. Sitzpinkler is someone who's sitting down for peeing, which is kind of a strange insult. So these are words that are kind of well known in German culture and you can insult someone with them. But if you actually encounter these in text and have to translate it to English, you would have explained basically the long story I just explained. So what do you do? Are you gonna say, oh, you're a warm shower taker or you're someone who pees sitting down? nobody would understand what that is supposed to mean. So the real adequate translation maybe is just, you know, you're a wimp, because that's what's really meant. But something is lost during translation. And that's kind of a crucial problem of translation, that it's ultimately an impossible task. There's always some nuance, some, you know, cultural connotation, and you're always going to lose something. And because you're always going to lose something, there's always endless debate about what is a good translation, and, and translators argue with each other, and nobody likes anybody else's translation. So it's a somewhat ill-defined problem. Compared to other problems in natural language processing, it's, however, relatively well-defined. I mean, there are other problems like summarization. Give me the summary of this book. I mean, you're not going to get much agreement from anybody about what that should be. But in translation, at least, if you're not super critical, you can say, okay, that's a passable translation, that's an acceptable translation, and that isn't. Thanks for the great introduction into machine translation and its challenges, Philip. Many formal approaches to machine translation tend to center around the two concepts of adequacy and fluency. Can you talk us through mm -hmm. that? So there's always two competing goals for translation. On the one hand, you want to produce text that is very fluent, that you don't even notice that it's translated, that it's just like it's written in the native language. So that's fluency. And the other one is adequacy. So that is, you want to have the same meaning of the source. And sometimes then conflict, and sometimes one is more important than something else. For instance, if you think about translation of literature, fluency is more important than adequacy. It's, it's more important that this is still an enjoyable book, and it captures the spirit of the book, and it doesn't have to get all the, the facts right. Like if I would write a story in an American newspaper about this town has the population of Nebraska, maybe in America people still know what that means, but if I translate that into Chinese, I mean, I could literally translate that as the town has the size of Nebraska, except the entire readership will have no idea what that is. So maybe you should then compare to a Chinese city that people know in China how big it is, so they actually have make some kind of sense of it. And that was the intention of the author. The intention of the author was to give some kind of understandable concept of that. But I mean, obviously, if you translate Nebraska with, I don't know, Wuhan, 
they're probably not the same size. That's, I mean, obviously a mistranslation in, in terms of adequacy, but in terms of fluency and intended meaning, it's probably the right thing to do. In statistical machine translation, we actually had two different components in the models that models these two different aspects separately. So we had a language model that looked at sentences and checked, is this a fluent sentence? And I prefer fluent sentences over non-fluent sentences. And then the translation model that just looks at how well things map. Um, we basically balance them and then we always tune them towards whatever the, the application goal was. How do you quantify the performance of such machine translation systems? What kind of metrics are useful for that? I mean, that bridges now to the next problem. So, so the way I described it, these are components of the model and they have a meaning within the model and they're used within the model, but ultimately the goal is to produce translations. And then that brings up the question, how do you evaluate what is a good translation? And we could spend the entire hour talking about evaluation of machine translation. We have an engineering problem that we want to build machine translation systems and tune them and change them. And we want to measure immediately how, how it goes. So we, so we need an automatic metric to evaluate how good is machine translation? How good is this system better than the other? So if I understand you correctly, performance metrics are more important internally to help train and develop the models. There's the infamous uh, blur score that is being used in machine translation. Um, it's technically a little bit it's a little bit too complicated uh, to explain super straightforwardly. I mean, ideally, you would like to know how many words are wrong, but then if you just count how many words are wrong, you also have to consider word order. So that that's not easy to do. So the blue score looks at how many words did I get right, but also which word pairs and triplets and four word sequences you got right. And you compare it against a human translation. So Basically, a, a machine translation system that is better than another machine translation system produces output that is more similar to a human translation that's already existing. That's how automatic metrics work. And so it all comes down to a measure of similarity. And there's a whole cottage industry coming up with metrics, how to measure similarity of machine translation output to a human translation. We also frequently, when we organize evaluation campaigns, and ultimately that kind of give the whole idea of automatic metrics some credence, we also do human evaluation of machine translation. Unfortunately, that's even trickier because <laughs> at that point, you don't have any ground truth anymore. If you have one method of human translation that says system A is better, another method of human evaluation that says system B is better, what are you going to do? For a long time, what we've done is we, we have people just looking at two sentences, one from system A, one from system B, and ask them which one is better. They'll disagree with each other. <laughs> they even disagree with themselves if you show them the same sentence pairs an hour later. Because typically, if there are flaws, there are different flaws in the two sentences. And then, like, why is this flaw worse than that flaw? You know, is word order worse than dropping a word? Is grammatical error worse? So, as I said, we could spend a whole hour on discussing how to evaluate machine translation. We have a pretty reasonably good, useful setup for the last 20 years since the blue score was invented. That we have these scores, everybody criticizes them all the time, but they're still used and they're definitely helped guide development of machine translation. One of the earlier ideas to machine translation was to split the problem into three categories, a lexical, a syntactic, and a semantic problem. Is this still a valid approach in the age of neural networks? So the short answer is no. To give a little bit longer answer is yeah. So there was, um, before the whole statistical wave hit about 20, 30 years ago, there was this grand vision of machine translation being an application that guides the development of better natural language processing and that 
involves also understanding language. And the idea was that we go through various processing stages. We start with, you know, part of speech tagging, like what are the nouns, what are the verbs, handling morphology and detecting syntactic structure. Here's a noun phrase, there's this clause, there's a subclause. And then beyond that, you know, each clause has some kind of, you know, meaning and uh, we have meaning representations. And ultimately, the vision was always to have some meaning representation that is beyond all language. So if you if you take a source language and map into that meaning representation that is beyond all language and then generate from that, you can build machine translation systems for every language pair. You just need to build an analyzer and a generator for each language. So that was, that was kind of the vision of rule-based and towards interlingua systems. So the, the statistical revolution that happened uh, 20 years ago was the first one that just threw all this by the wayside and just said, okay, it's just a word mapping problem. We just have to find source words, map them to target words, and we have to have some kind of model of reordering, but it's all tied to words. So it was a very superficial model that just looked at word sequences. The output of that was generally nice, except often it was not very grammatical because they only looked at very short windows. So back then we had for instance, to check if something is fluent language, we only looked at word sequences of five words at a time. And of course, then, you know, you might sometimes reach the end of a sentence and you never encounter the verb of the sentence, which is, you know, somewhat crucial. They all kind of read locally very fluent, but then suddenly the sentence ended and it didn't make sense. So there, there was then pretty good pressure to say, well, because it doesn't have any understanding of syntactic structure. So we developed statistical systems that actually build syntactic structures. So there was long-standing research in natural language processing to build parse trees, what we call these syntactic representations that have all these things that I mentioned, noun phrases, clauses, and so on. And we were actually pretty successful. That was, that was work that was originally done on Chinese English, where word order and structure was much trickier. We also were really successful in German English, which was long a really hard problem for natural language processing. Although German and English are really related languages, the syntax is really vastly different. I mean, German famously has a verb at the end of the sentence, although that's not entirely true. But, you know, something has to reorder that verb and put it in the right place. And the traditional models were not very good at it. So we were kind of in statistical days, kind of it seemed to be on the way of building linguistically better motivated models. They became always more complicated because suddenly you had to build tree structures. And then there was all this talk about semantic representations. And these were then graph structures that are even more difficult. And that's where then the neural machine translation wave hit again and started out with saying we're just treated as a word mapping problem there's a sequence of words coming in we're producing a sequence of output words and i like to joke that in neural days there are people who don't even believe in a linguistic concept of a word anymore let's just say there's a characters a sequence of characters coming in and a sequence of characters coming out and there's, there's pretty serious efforts of building models that really treat this as there's a byte sequence coming in and there's a byte sequence coming out and no notion of any kind of linguistic understanding behind that so machine translation moved from rule-based systems more and more to statistical approaches this is something that we have seen happening in many other fields as well in the last decade with the introduction of machine learning methods. What do you think are the reasons for this? Does the complexity of neural graphs match language very well? 
Is it the availability of data or hardware? Um, yeah, the various aspects to that. I mean, the turn towards data-driven methods and natural language processing is pretty much in parallel to what I just described about machine translation. So other problems in natural language processing, um, for instance, just analyzing syntactic structures, parsing, uh, was often done by handwritten rules. You know, you can just write a rule. A sentence is a subject, verb, object. Okay, a subject is a noun phrase. A noun phrase is a determinate adjective noun. I mean, that sounds like very, very natural, except then if you actually look at actual text, there's like every other sentence has something that violates these kind of very basic ideas about how language should look like. So in the 90s was rebuilt now, we just annotate sentences with their syntactic trees and then we learn things. In general, yeah, why is that? such successful for language processing why has completely overtaken the field is just because this is also a field where you actually have data and in translation you especially have data you get all your training data for free all you need is translated text and people translate stuff all the time so people generate your training data all the time just because that's the natural activity that people do i mean there's many other problems but that's not the case if you look at image classification i know people who go around and then just just for the fun of it label you know this is a dog and this is a cat i mean maybe they write captions but all that is kind of less shaky but translation is because it's such an inherent human task that people have been doing we get the training data it's extremely rare that if we actually annotate training data ourselves, we just try to go out and find translated text from on the internet or from public repositories and so on. Humans also have different ways of learning language, right? As children, we learn by listening, but later in school, we are taught a more formal and um, rule-based approach. Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm not a linguist. So we don't, for instance, have a good linguistic theory, how lang like what the structure of language is. And I mean... What you describe is that as kids, yeah, we just listen to language and then we're told. But then we also go through a phase where we go to school and then saying, no, this is the wrong grammar and you're making a grammar mistake here. And this is, so we basically taught some rules. And, you know, especially if you look at language like German, you have to get your cases right. And yeah, I still remember from, from school where, you know, all the word endings have to be right. So you learn rules. So is, is language driven by rules or is language just a mess of somebody says something and people repeat it? And it seems to be a mix of both. So there seems to be some structure and, you know, that's where Chomsky comes in and there's a famous claim of language being recursive. And, you know, it has a, it has some structure, but then it also seems to be people can just say, you know, crazy things and then they repeat it. So I hear from my kids now, like, you, what was it? He better be vibing though, or something like that. <laughs> I'm mangling that. And that's apparently something you can say, although it's not really grammatical in English, you know, or whether he, he do be vibing though. <laughs> I, you know, that's not proper grammar, but that's what people say and people repeat it and then it becomes part of language. And is it like, what is language? It's language driven by some normative rules or is it just something that people just pick up things, borrow from other languages and so on. You described how inputs of machine translation models changed over time from phrases to words to subwords. And as you said, there are attempts now to process even sequences of characters. What has been driving this process? So the fundamental problem in in language is that everything is incredibly ambiguous. 
words are ambiguous, words have different meanings, syntactic structures might be ambiguous. I mean, the classic example of words like river bank versus the bank where you have your money in, or interest is another great word, which means, you know, something being interesting or is interest rate or having interest in a company. So words are ambiguous. And there's this example, like I eat steak with ketchup when I eat steak with a knife. That that is a structural difference, is you know related to the action. So there's always ambiguity, and that's why always you know it's hard for a computer because it has to resolve the ambiguity. So how can a computer ever tell the difference between you know a financial bank and the river bank? They're just bank. They're just you know character sequence for words B A N K. So what can it do with that? And the answer is it can do the same thing that we do. We just look at the surrounding context. We understand the difference. Just when I say river bank and money bank, you're not going to confuse what I mean by each of the words bank. And it was just the preceding word that told you that. And that's what machines do. So they look at preceding words. And that's what drives a lot of using different representations of language. So if you, if you do phrase translation, you translate groups of words and a group of words like interest rate is much, much less ambiguous. It has a very clear meaning, while the word interest is very ambiguous and the word rate is very ambiguous. So if you translate them independently, it is very confusing. If you translate them as a phrase, it's very clear. So that's one aspect. Uh, when you get to subwords and, and character sequences, that usually comes up in the issue of morphology. So if you just say any word is a different word and has a different meaning, well, what do you have with car and cars? They're different words, they have different meaning, uh, but shouldn't you be able to share some knowledge? You know, just like that's what we do as humans. If I tell you a new word, but I only tell it to you in singular, you'll still understand what it means when I then suddenly use the plural of the word because I just added the word letter S. So that is driving a bit well. We need to get away from representing car and cars as completely different things. And if you look at character sequences, you, you see from the character sequence that they're very similar and that should help. You have been describing how the sequential character of sentences is used by machine translation models. Is this one of the reasons the field is currently relying so heavily on recurrent neural networks? Yeah, so you have an input uh, sentence and you have an output sentence. And the output sentence always, whenever you, you, you try to predict one word at a time, if you predict one word at a time, you have all the previous words that you generated to help to disambiguate. So what drives a decision to produce the next word is obviously the input sentence, but also all the previous words that you have produced. So it's, it's, it's kind of a recurrent process. And that's how people, I mean, that's the big question. Is, it, is language recursive? Is it or just a sequence? And there's good reason to believe that it's heavily influenced by it being a sequence. When we understand language, we always receive it linearly. I mean, we, we listen to things word by word and we read things word by word. We don't look at the entire sentence and look for the verb and then branch out again. We just we see it as a sequence. So it should be modeled as a sequence generating task too, where you produce one word after the other. And that makes it also a bit more feasible. I mean, you can't just predict the whole sentence. It's just, you know, infinite many sentences, but you can predict one word at a time. You still have a fairly large vocabulary, you know, in actual real text, hundreds of thousands of words that drives some of these, you know, let's break up infrequent words into subwords to make it computational a bit more feasible. But it seems to be a, that this recurrent process of producing one word at a time seems to suit language pretty well.
Can you talk a little bit more about the type of neural network you are using um, or their internal structure? I understand there is a part that is encoding the input sentence and then there is another part that is decoding it into the output sentence. If you go back to, and there, there's definitely a lot of talk in the neural network world applying it to language also about semantics and the meaning. But you can still frame the problem as you have an input sentence, and you try to get the meaning of that input sentence, and then you from that meaning, you try to generate the output sentence. As I said earlier, in rule-based days and, and slightly also in statistical days towards the end, this was done explicitly. They were actually put in representations that much more closely mirrored our understanding of meaning or at least syntactic structure or things like that. And in neural networks, there are claims that this kind of meaning emerges kind of in the middle of the process of going from an input sentence to an output sentence. So we do break up the, the problem of translation into an encoder that just looks at the source sentence and does some processing just on the source sentence. And then the decoder that starting with that processing generates the output sentence. The very first neural machine translation models used recurrent neural networks. So these are neural networks that at each stage take as input the, the previous state and a new input word. So they kind of walk through the sentence and saying, okay, what's the probability that I start the sentence with the word the? Okay, that's a certain probability. Let's predict that. And then what's the probability the next word is man? Okay, I know where I'm in a sentence. Now what's the probability of producing the word man? And it just learns these things. So this is kind of offhand, very similar to what I talked earlier about as language models. So how, how likely do certain words follow each other. If you do this, you learn kind of which words fit in sequence well. Um, this helps you also to figure out how words fit into sentences. And an ambiguous word is then not only represented by its source, you know, the actual word token, but also the surrounding context. So here you had these recurrent neural networks running left and right on the over the sentence that then looked at the word not only as word in isolation, but the word given the left context, the word given the right context. So you have several layers of these recurrent neural networks as input. So then you have kind of more refined representations of each word that is informed by its surrounding context. And then you translate from that and you also then produce one word at a time. That's now where the decoder comes in. So this is what I just described, hopefully somewhat clearly, is recurrent neural networks uh, that was started neural machine translation five years ago, which is now ancient days. But since about two, three years, we have a different model that is called uh, Transformer, which is not a very informative name. A bit more informative name is self-attention. So there's the idea that we're modeling each word in the context of the other words. And we just do this very explicitly. We look at each word and saying how related it is to all the other words in the sentences. So we learn some weights. Well, the word itself is obviously most important, but maybe some of the surrounding words are more important than others. And we're going to refine the representation of the word given the surrounding words. We go through layers of that. So this is this self-intentional transformer approach. And we have the same thing on the source side and the target side. Can you give us an idea of typical things that can go wrong with machine translation and which methods do you use to validate the outputs? So validation is like, how well does your system do? And what we do there is we just, you know, we leave aside a bunch of sentences and we just translate them and uh, check how well they match 
whatever the human produced for the sentence. And we can we can measure this, as I said before, with blue scores. But you can also measure it in like what probability did it give to each word in the human translation. We can also make it to produce the human output and then see how well it scores that. Um, what can go wrong? Um, so one interesting thing about the neural machine translation approach is it, it differs in the types of errors quite a lot from what the statistical methods used to do. So statistical methods, because they had a very narrow window, what they looked at when they translated something, they often produced in grammatical output or very incoherent output. So if you give it a, a sentence that is just has a lot of unusual word or is difficult to other words, uh, for other reasons, the translation then often is just very gibberish and hard to read. Um, the neural model, because at its heart, in the in the end, it's just a generative language model. It just produces word sequences. It almost always produces beautiful sentences. It just sometimes these sentences have nothing to do with the input anymore. <laughs> um, there were some newspaper articles about why does Google Translate pronounce biblical prophecies, and that's something we've seen actually in our in our experiments too. So if you don't have much data, what do you have? You have the Bible, you have the Quran. That's the kind of data you get for, for like hundreds of languages. So you train your model on that, and then you suddenly want to translate tweets, and what the model seems to be doing that is. I have no idea what that input is. I don't know what to do with it, but here's a beautiful sentence I've seen in training. Let me just tell you that. And it just produces output that is completely unrelated. So there's a much bigger problem of it producing things that just semantically have absolutely nothing to do with. We call these hallucinations where it just kind of comes up with stuff that was not there in the source at all. And that's a real problem because it's also hidden by the fact that the output just looks beautiful. So if you're just a naive user of machine translation, you have a Chinese document, you translate it, and then you read it, oh, like, this is beautiful English text. But you don't really know if it's actually a translation because you're fooled by it being such beautiful text that you're less clear about, does it actually translate all the words right? So we've gotten much better in the fluency and actually producing beautiful output text. But the problem of adequacy of do we actually translate the words correctly? And do we handle ambiguous words nicely? So if an ambiguous word occurs in a sentence with a meaning that is not the most common meaning and the surrounding context is not clear enough to give that away, at least for the machine, then it often screws that up. So it produces an, a beautiful sentence and that, that doesn't actually mean what the source sentence means. And that's a real problem because it's, it's much more misleading than previously. Previously, you just got gibberish output, so you didn't trust it. And now you get beautiful output, and then nothing tells you not to trust it. And this brings to a close part one of our conversation with Professor Philip Cohn. We will be back in a week's time with part two of this conversation, and we'd love to extend the reach of the show to as many people as possible. So please do subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review.